Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. Have you ever heard about Tokaido? If you live in Japan, I bet yes. But if you've ever visited, I'm also positive you took Tokaido Shinkansen between Tokyo, Kyoto and Osaka. And if you love art, you've probably seen some of the prints from Tokaido series by Hiroshige. So what exactly is Tokaido? It's a road. A Schrodinger's road, as it's considered long gone, but at the same time is livelier than ever. Never-ending traffic on Route 1 and some more millions of commuters on Tokaido train and Shinkansen lines will prove it. If you get up early and take the Shinkansen bullet train from Kyoto around 7 in the morning, thanks to Tokaido at half past 9 you will be eating breakfast at one of the many Tokyo station cafes. But at the same time, you can come to Hakone and walk the 17th century stone paved road lined with cedar trees and try to put yourself in the shoes of the Edo period traveler. I have to admit, the more I use the former Tokaido, the more I'm in favor of the later one. And I'm even guilty of romanticizing it. So wait, 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 wait. Toki, you want to talk about a road? Yes. About a 1,000-year-old road. But more than that, I want to rediscover Tokaido for myself. Because I need to know why a single road just won't leave my head. Let's start at the very beginning. Initially, Takaido appeared in the end of the 7th century as one of the seven roads of Gokishichido system. At that time, the center of the state was located in the modern-day Kansai region, not far from the city of Nara, famous for its sacred deers, which I already told you about in one of the previous episodes. Takaido was not the most important road of the period. The Japanese of the time were much more interested in the way to Dazaifu, a city located on the southern island of Kyushu. But the state was actively expanding to the northeast and two roads, the eastern sea route and the eastern mountain route, became known as the principal access ways to the remote regions of the country. The Japanese of those days, however, did not like to travel. And it's completely understandable. Traveling was not very convenient and not safe at all. River crossings alone were quite a problem. So, even though Tokaido existed, travelers tried to reach their destination by sea. At the end of the 8th century, the capital moved to Heian-kyo, now Kyoto, and the state continued to expand and evolve, but this did not add to the Japanese love of travel. Most travelers of the period were government officials, tax collectors, and military personnel traveling out of necessity. The commoners preferred to stay at home. The capital of peace and tranquility was peaceful and quiet, while the roads were plagued by criminals and evil spirits of all kinds. Nevertheless, short trips out of the capital to visit temples or admire nature were gaining popularity along the bored aristocrats. It was even more honorable to go sightseeing as a part of the emperor's entourage. Such a journey, called Kunimi, however, was partly of a religious nature. The emperor would view a place specially chosen for the occasion and recite a verse in its honor. That was probably a lot of fun, but it was still not a pleasure trip and more a necessary right to protect the realm. 
the emperor was doing his job. Most likely it was monks who first started traveling by choice. At the beginning of the 11th century, a priest called Zoki, in his travel diary, the master of the hut, explained his desire to travel with these lines. There was a certain man who desired to flee the world and live as he pleased. He was also stirred by the thought of visiting all the delightful places in the country of which he had heard. At the same time, it occurred to him that if he were to worship at all the various holy places, it might reduce his burden of sins. His name was Master of the Hut. Takeda's role changed drastically following the establishment of the Kamakura Shogunate in 1192. The new samurai capital, located not far from present-day Tokyo and Yokohama, kept a constant touch with the imperial court in Kyoto. The traveling nobility willingly recorded their journeys, leaving us diaries such as Kaidoki or Tokankiko. Monks continued to travel as well, and with the improvement in road quality, a growing number of people wished to go on a pilgrimage to the holy sites in Kumano. By the turn of the 13th century, it takes only 12 to 15 days to travel from Kyoto to Kamakura, a mere trifle compared to the nearly three months' journey that awaited travelers of the 7th century. But as Japan begins to crumble into semi-independent provinces in the 14th century and a century later plunges into the turmoil of the Sengoku period, each feudal lord finds himself on his own. The national highways are falling into despair. Instead, each daimyo seeks to restrict access to his domain using checkpoints. However, the general chaos results in more and more people traveling around the country. Young samurai hoping to sharpen their skills and see the world, pilgrims to holy places whose numbers have skyrocketed due to the constant warfare as a reminder of human mortality. On top of that, the roads remained a place for the marginalized members of society. Only now they were inhabited not only by evil spirits and bandits, but also by the priests of Issei and Kumano shrines, troubadours and puppeteers, dancers and musicians, and even artisans who cast metal or construct wooden tools, as they had the privilege of passing through the barriers without special permission. It is not until Oda Nobunaga comes into the picture that the roads regain their importance. In the later half of the 16th century, he and his successor Toyotomi Hideyoshi would invest a great deal of energy in restoring national highways as a symbol of the new and rapidly unifying Japan. The country's main roads, including Tokaido, would become wider and necessary toll gates would disappear, as well as bandits, who had long terrified travelers. However, all this is nothing compared to how the Japanese highways would be changed by Tokugawa Ieyasu, who gained power over the United Country. The 17th century begins in Japan with the construction of the Gokaido, a system of five roads connecting the new samurai capital of Edo with various regions of the country. The scale of the road construction made it immediately apparent that Tokugawa planned to rule Japan for a long time. The roads enabled them to efficiently dispatch officials, goods and correspondence around the country and to quickly dispatch troops when necessary. The five highways, including Tokaido, now fall under the direct control of the Tokugawa shoguns, 
the last remaining toll gates between provinces disappear. Along with them goes the road toll. Among the five highways, one stands out more than the others. It is the Tokaido Road, the shortest route between the Tokugawa's headquarters in Edo, now Tokyo, and the imperial city of Kyoto. This highway must operate seamlessly, and so its entire length runs through the territories of relatives and trusted allies of the Tokugawa clan and also includes four military centers of the Tokugawa. The average width of the modernized road was 5.5 to 7 meters. Where the road was flat and dry, it was covered with sand, while in the mountainous and other challenging areas, it was paved with stone. Drainage ditches has been dug on each side of the road, and in many places, pine or cryptomeria trees were planted to serve a number of functions, from draining water and preventing the road from eroding, to improving visibility in bad weather and protecting travelers from the sun during the hot days. Each of the 124 ri, or roughly every fourth kilometer of the nearly 500 kilometer road, was marked with an Ichirizuka marker. The marker consisted of two high hills built on each side of the road, with a large tree in the center. If you think it's nothing special, Note that the markers erected by the Tokugawa in the early years of the 17th century would only appear on British roads a century and a half later. Speaking of the British, in 1613, an English captain, John Serres, visited Japan. On Tokaido, he wrote the following. For the most part, it's wonderfully even. This way is the main road of all this country and is for the most part sandy and gravel. Forty years later, Tokaido was admired by the Swede Olaf Eriksson Willman, who wrote, probably no other road in the world costs as much as this one. Well, he wasn't far from the truth, I suppose. Take, for example, the scenic but dangerous and, by the way, still existing stretch of the road through Hakone Mountains. Initially, attempts were made to make the road safer by lining it with bamboo. But the bamboo rotated and had to be replaced every year, costing huge amounts of money and manpower. So, in 1680, the Bakufu government spent a whopping 1,400 ryo to pave a 10-kilometer stretch of road between Hakone and Mishima stations with stone. Once and for all. Another more famous and more verbose Swedish physician and naturalist Carl Peter Thunberg traveled along the Tokaido in the 18th century, in 1776 to be exact. The roads in this country are broad and furnished with two ditches to carry off the water. And in good order all the year round, but especially at this season, when the princes of the country, as also the Dutch, take their annual journey to the capital. The roads are, at this time, not only strewed with sand, but, before the arrival of travelers, they are swept with brooms, all horse done and dirt of every kind removed, and in hot, dusty weather, they are watered. Thunberg made a good point, too. Tokaido was an extremely busy road, and also the only one to be allowed for certain categories of travelers, including the processions of many daimyo feudal lords. Since it was the shogunal road, its condition reflected the authority of the government, 
and the road had to be kept in perfect condition. The burden of this fell largely on the residents of the villages along the road. Receiving news of the passage of an important envoy or procession, each village had to make sure that its section of the road was in proper condition. In addition, the villagers were required to maintain the trees planted along the road, repair the roads and gutters, and mend bridges as well. The Bakufu naturally assisted them financially. But wow, keeping up appearances is expensive. Foreigners visiting Japan would continue to praise Takaido in the 19th century. It seems that there were no negative opinions about the road at all. It is true that some parts of the road passing through the mountains were quite difficult, but as a whole the quality of the road was satisfactory to all. The quality of the surface and ease of navigation, however, were not the only merits of Tokaido. Tokugawa did their best for themselves and their officials, and succeeded handsomely. In 1601, Tokugawa Ieyasu sent two of his trusted officials to inspect Tokaido. After walking the road and surveying local conditions, the officials granted official post station status to 33 settlements along the route. Each of those stations was designated to have 36 horses and 36 porters on hand to cover the government's needs. In subsequent years, 20 more stations acquired official status, becoming the famous 53 stations of Tokaido, praised by Hiroshige. The post stations, called Shukuba or Shukubamachi in Japanese, were an important part of Tokaido and other Japanese highways. There one could stay overnight, send letters and goods, exchange silver and gold money for copper coins, order a palanquin with porters or a horse to the next station. Anything that might be of use to a government official on the way. If the distance between the stations happened to be rather long and the stretch of road not easy, a small rest station, Tateba, could be built between them. Usually they were built in scenic spots where travelers would want to rest and maybe have a meal at the same time, as local restaurants actively invited passers-by to try local delicacies. Charity also had its place on the road. On the challenging mountain passes, travelers had access to the Settai Chaya shelters, run by Buddhist priests and local patrons. There, one could find shelter from bad weather, get warm by fire, and feed one's horses for free. What a great life Japanese people had in that period, you might think. The state made sure they were safe and comfortable, and you didn't even have to pay to travel that wonderful road anymore. This is more or less the version of Tokaido, advertised by the Tokaido Renaissance campaign, which is trying to revive interest in good old Edo-era Japan and traveling along the Tokaido road. Nothing against the good old Edo period, I do myself love it in this romanticized form. But this is Japan Explained, and we are talking facts here, so it's about time we cooled your feelings a little bit. Let's start with the small stuff. Firstly, the wonderful Tokaido road didn't look good just because of government funding and the hard work of the local villagers. Another big reason? There was practically no heavy cargo traffic on the road. Mountain passes and raging, frequently overflowing rivers made it an unreliable way to move large goods, which continued to be transported to Edo mostly by sea. 
Simply put, the lack of trucks on the roads makes for good road conditions. That's one. Two, contrary to the strong belief that Tokaido was the best and shortest route from Edo to Kyoto, it was actually neither. The reason is that government goals were not always aligned with those of the common people. Tokaido, for example, had branch roads that avoided difficult river crossings or checkpoints. Of course, it was more convenient for the ordinary people to travel along them, but they were not allowed. They still did, though. Well, simply put, the history of footpaths trampled across the lawns is longer than you think. 3. The side road situation reached the point of absolute absurdity when the rivers overflowed. Bakufu fiercely defended the financial well-being of the postal stations. Their finances were already bad as it was, and the lack of traffic hurt them badly. But the major river overflow could hold the movement on Tokaido for a week or two, which is a big disadvantage in itself. Travelers tried to save time and money by making a detour. The stations lost their income and complained to the government in Edo. The government usually did not take any punitive measures against the violators, but it did issue edicts to be posted at the stations for the travelers to see, such as this one, written in 1822. It had been reported that in recent years, travelers for convenience sake have been using side roads. When there is a river stoppage, for example, instead of waiting at the post station for the water level to drop to an acceptable level, travelers have been breaking the law by using the side roads. From now on, this is to cease. Of course, it didn't have an effect on everyone, but law-abiding travelers spent days in the post station inns waiting for the crossing to open, and sometimes they even had to go to the station or two back to find a place to spend the night. I think you now understand what the Tokaido road looked like, but it's not yet quite clear how it functioned. So, let's make a stop on the way and take a look at Shukuba post stations. As we've already found out, there were 53 postal stations on the road. Some of them were existing villages, others passed through the port towns, castle towns or temple towns, while others were specifically built in the right places. The main function of the stations was to provide transportation services for government correspondents, goods and officials. That was the main purpose of stations' existence, so they were exempt from land taxes, station managers received a salary from the Bakufu, and later stations even received a rice ration to support Tsugihikaku messengers. In addition to this important function, Post stations were places where travelers of all classes stayed overnight and rested during the day, transportation hubs and information centers. And as the number of both government officials and ordinary travelers grew through the Edo period, so did the post stations. The population of most of them exceeded 1,000 people, and some stations were so busy that they found work for more than 3,000 inhabitants. To ensure that all stations had fair income, both goods and people were transported on a relay. That is, they would go from the first station to the second, unload there, change horses and porters, and go to the third station. It was not allowed to skip a station or two. 
This of course was inconvenient for the users and the official carriers began to have illegal competitors. That in turn did not at all help the financial well-being of the stations and as I mentioned earlier their finances were bad enough as it was. That was because the Bakufu had established an hierarchy of travelers along the road and a corresponding hierarchy of prices for lodging, porters and horses. The intentions were good. Since it was the government road, government cargo and travelers, of which there were about 80 categories, including high-profile occasions such as the procession of the shogun or nobility, foreign missions and embassies, used the road and benefited from all services, free of charge. Another category of semi-official travelers received services at a reduced fixed rate. Here Tokugawa included for example many of their officials, but they also added processions of daimyo feudal lords who once a year traveled from their lands to Edo and back. These journeys were compulsory as they were a way for Tokugawa to ensure their safety. The wives and children of feudal lords permanently resided in Edo and provincial governors spent a great amount of time and money on maintaining their two residences and traveling between them, leaving no spare resources to port a coup. The third category of travelers included everyone else – merchants, artisans, pilgrims, you name it. They paid market price for all services. And with them, the ordinary travelers there were no problems. Everyone was traveling within their means. That could not be said for the first two categories who loved to travel in style but did not like to pay for services provided in excess of their allowance. Lodgings were another source of income for the stations. Therefore, it was strictly prohibited for travelers to stay overnight in other settlements. The inns for different categories of travelers were different too. While daimyo and the nobility stayed in luxurious Honjin inns, samurai merchants and pilgrims slept in more modest hatagoya, where they were provided with dinner and breakfast, a hot bath and bedding. The average cost for a night's stay was 200 mon, or about 4-5000 yen today. But in today's hotels for that price you can forget about dinner and breakfast. Travelers with little means had to make do with a kitchen yado, establishments that provided only a roof over one's head, no bedding and no meals. But it was cheap, only about 50 mon or 1000 yen, which is less than 10 dollars by today's standards. At night the entrance gates of the post station would close. It seemed as if it cut itself off from the rest of the world, where one had to follow established rules. In the eyes of travelers, this gave the post station a flare of looseness, impermanence and transience. Pretty much all the same ukiyo, the floating world I described in the first part of Ukiyo Explained episode. I think you followed the guess what follows. In the popular imagination, post stations have become firmly associated with festivals and street actors' performances, with courtesans and local delicacies. And all this is extensively covered not only in travel diaries, but also in guidebooks. For example, the Shinagawa station, now part of Tokyo, was famous for its courtesans and attracted large numbers of holidaymakers from Edo. 
Of course, the government tried to stop prostitution outside of the license quarters in every way possible, but to no avail. Eventually, the Bakufu gave up and issued an edict with an approximate message. Okay, but at least have some decency and keep no more than two girls per inn. Gradually, the image of Ukiyo extended to the entire Tokaido road. Guidebooks wrote about local delicacies of all the provinces along the route, about famous landscapes and attractions, and about the best inns. On the road, you could meet a lavish procession of daimyo, or better yet, Dutchmen coming all the way from southern Nagasaki. On one occasion, you could even see an elephant marching through Tokaido. Of course, all of these generated a great interest of pleasure travelers. In the 18th century, Japan experiences a travel boom. A popular belief of the time says that everyone should go on a pilgrimage at least once in a lifetime. But the pilgrimages of the Edo period for many people were not so much about religion as they were about the ease of obtaining permission to travel. After all, even the famous Ise Shrine was known for the nearby red light district. Further interest in travel was driven by the numerous books on Tokaido published throughout the Edo period. The poet Matsuo Basho journeyed Tokaido and wrote about it, while Asai Roi published a six-volume book called Tokaido Meishoki in 1660. And in 1802, Jipensha Ikku started publishing his Tokaido Chuhizakurige series, which became the most famous work of fiction about Tokaido. With plenty of references to popular knowledge and untranslatable and often inappropriate linguistic jokes, the book describes the journey of two buddies, Yaji and Kita, from Edo to Ise. Most of their journey follows Tokaido, presenting readers with the hero's adventures at checkpoints and postal stations. So, when Hiroshige releases his 53 Stations of Tokaido series in 1832, it is bound for success. In his prints, Hiroshige combines the experience from his own journey on Tokaido with the famous classical landscapes and conveys the atmosphere of the journey by depicting the different seasons of the year and weather conditions. His prints feature popular restaurants and inns, daimyo processions and simple porters, famous shrines and crossings of mighty rivers, and maybe even a few images of Yeji and Kita. The series becomes incredibly popular with both real-life and armchair travelers alike. Having carefully examined Hiroshige's prints one by one, you really don't need to go anywhere anymore. Following Hiroshige, other artists published their series of prints dedicated to Tokaido. And on that high note, the Edo period comes to an end. As the Meiji era began in 1868, Kyoto officially lost its status as the capital of Japan. The city of Edo is renamed Tokyo and becomes the one and only capital of the country. The first half of the new era passes in an effort to eradicate the feudal and thus barbaric past of Japan. And so the old roads and post stations are replaced by the symbol of Japan's modernization, the railroad. There seems to be no question about where the first train line should pass. 
The first railroad runs from Shinbashi Station in Tokyo to Yokohama, and then the construction continues until the track reaches ancient Kyoto, commercial Osaka, and foreign settlements in Kobe. The name of the country's new main road is still Tokaido. I believe you don't need my help to name the many differences between traveling on foot and traveling by train. And the main one is probably not even the fact that the train significantly reduces the travel time, but that it transforms it. When you travel on foot, the travel time and the time spent and the destination are not so different from each other. While when you travel by train, you simply sit inside the car, in no way interacting with the area around you until you arrive at the station. As a result, guidebooks on the Takaida Road are now disappearing from the stores. They are replaced by guidebooks covering the surroundings of train stations. And so travel, with all its aura of discovery and romantic feel, is giving way to tourism. The early period image of the road did not help either. Foreigners pouring into the country after it opened on one hand admired the nature, architecture and customs of Japan, but on the other, this did not prevent them from judging everything, or condemning half-naked porters, promiscuous street performers and courtesans, calling them evidence of a barbaric past. The new government, of course, took the opinion of foreigners extremely seriously, and the journey along the road lost all its former charm. With it, the post stations fell into despair. But the thirst for novelty and urge to westernize quickly fades. The second half of the Meiji period is characterized by a rise of nationalism and a return to everything truly Japanese. A new wave of books comes out to revive travel on foot along the old road. Among them you can find travel guides, travel diaries and even works of fiction, where you can clearly see the author's negative attitude toward trains. In the 1910s and 20s, groups of artists embark on walking journeys and road trips along the old road, hoping to find remnants of forgotten Edo-era landscapes or echoes of Hiroshige's prints. But while romantics stay romantics, progress continues. The Tokaido region gradually became the center of Japanese industry. By the 1960s and 70s, this leads to the emergence of the so-called Tokaido megalopolis, Japan's wealthiest, most populous, and most industrialized region, formed by the cities of Tokyo, Yokohama, Nagoya, and Osaka, and their vast suburbs. In 1964, Tokaido makes another dramatic change. This year marks the opening of the Tokaido Shinkansen line. Launched right before the Tokyo Olympics, the bullet train connecting Tokyo and Osaka in just four hours becomes a symbol of Japan post-war recovery. That seems to be the end of the story. In 13 centuries of Tokaido's existence, the speed of travel on the road shrank from three months to two and a half hours, but it is still the main artery connecting the cultural and financial centers of the country. But even though the old Tokaido road has long since disappeared under the highway number one, the Japanese don't let go of their past so easily. And so, in 1991, they launched the Tokaido Renaissance campaign, aimed at reviving what remains of the old road. 
The idea was supported by some of the prefectures along the route, many of which had grown wary of the fact that the Shinkansen had created a direct corridor between Tokyo, Nagoya and Osaka, leaving all the other towns along the line neglected. But since so little remains of the road, the campaign is largely aimed at evoking the collective memory of good old Japan, the lively and vibrant Edda period and the joys of an unhurried journey on foot. About Hiroshige and his wonderful prince again. Though they are spot on with Hiroshige. Idealized and imaginary landscapes do not grow old and don't disappear behind concrete buildings. And they are much easier for armchair travelers to understand than video blogs and photo articles where small museums and sections of the road occasionally appear among the endless series of traffic lights and stone monuments with the inscriptions, once upon a time, there used to be something here. On the other hand, even if it is in a semi-functional form, the old Tokaido road continues to exist. Which is still better than if it had faded into oblivion. I'll leave you with this. Next time, I suggest you to continue with the topic of travel and see how different people traveled around Tokaido in the 17th-19th centuries. And if you want to learn even more about the post stations or some of the essential parts of the road, such as the Sekisho checkpoints or river crossings, bonus episodes about them are already waiting for you on Patreon and are available via the link in the description. Please don't forget to subscribe not to miss the next show and talk to you soon. Bye!